بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما الحمد لله السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته So I'm fortunate today to be here with a very dear brother, older brother and uh, uh, somebody who's uh, very dear to my heart and that's uh, Sidi Harun Sugic and I haven't been doing this on the sacred text messages, but uh, we had uh, Tobias Tubbs and Anthony Samadani, and, and I really enjoyed the conversation, so I thought it would be nice to have a conversation with uh, Sidi Harun, who is visiting from overseas, visiting his family here. But we just to really contextualize this, uh, I became Muslim in 1977, and I actually took my Shahada with uh, Harun, my brother Harun, and um, he was the first, but I had read the Quran and I was very interested in Islam, but he he was really the person that said to me, do you want to become Muslim? And I basically said, yes. So I'm here and this is, I mean, we're looking at now over 40 years. So we've we've really, we've, we've grown old because you, you were a young man. And I was a slightly younger man, not that much younger, but I was a younger man. And now we're old and gray, and it's really been an interesting journey. So I thought just maybe we could talk a little bit about how you came into this extraordinary uh, faith and then brought so many other people, and I was one of them. Well, I, I, I've, I've written about this myself in, in a book called Heart's Turn, I have a section on on, on my own story, uh, among other stories that were that I re, re, retold from different various people, and um, so I, it, it's more probably more eloquently told in the book than what I would say today. What I will say today, but basically, I was in the in the arts. I was an a, an actor and a and a singer. Uh, um, and that's what I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life. I, I didn't. And in fact, the theater uh, and mu was a kind of religion if, to me, in a way. I mean, I, I saw it in that, in that light. Uh, but what happened was when I got, got into sort of the professional world, uh, after having spent all my youth in the theater and performing and thinking that that was my, you know, my destiny. Uh, I, I was confronted with show business. And show business is something very different than the art of anything. The, the business side of it is, is uh, for, was to me anyway, awful. I, I, I was immediately, um, you know, appalled by it and repelled by it. And it was a shock. So I, I was going through a, a, a period of trying to figure out what I really wanted to do with my life. Um, and, um, and also I became ambivalent about, uh, ambivalent about the actual um, art of acting, for example, uh, because I, f I felt that you, know, you, you had to um, invoke emotions as, a, as an actor that were um, contrary to what is healthy, you know. I mean, all the great parts. I, I, I always wanted to play Iago in Othello or Macbeth, you know. These were the, you know, they're great parts. But in order to do that, you have to dredge up hatred and, and envy and all these negative emotions. So I... Uh, I, became, I, I started to have a problem with that. And so one thing led to another, and then I had an, an, a number of opportunities which were scotched by uh, circumstances. I got sick. I was on the verge of being in a big movie, and I got sick. And, um, and anyway, the accumulation of a lot of different experiences led me to a point where I really... Um, I had to. I, I I felt that I had to really gain some wisdom, and 
understand myself. I got sick once, and I was sick for six months, and I lost the ability to to sing, which was what I was very focused on at that point. And so I was stuck for six months with myself for the first time in my life. And that was... Diff- very difficult for me because my mind was just out of control, just churning along, and I was sit, I was sit in bed, sick, trying to get over this the mysterious inf- infection that I had. And uh, in that period, I picked up a book by uh, an actor, a Japanese actor named Sesu Hayakawa. Sesu Hayakawa was won an Academy Award for the Bridge on the River Kwai. He played the uh, brutal commandant, yeah, right. commandant of the of the prison. Uh, and he, the book's title was Zen Showed Me the Way. And uh, what he he attributed all of his success because he was also a very successful painter as well um, and uh, artist. He said everything came from from Zen, and I, that really appealed to me because I I'd always thought of of spirituality as being something for for misfits, for uh, yogis and and f- fakers, and you know the the this the stereotype of this spiritual person. So I. Uh, I was very intrigued by that. Um, and then at the same time, my cousin, who was a, was an omnivorous reader, I mean, he really, he, he would read everything. I mean, you're more of an omnivorous reader, or you have been, I think, than he, even he was, he, he was. But he he was reading books on Sufism, the mm. ones that were available, because he was in the book business as well. And... Uh, so he said, "You should, you should read this." And I, and I read the, I read, I read some book, on. I think it was by Idris Shah called "The Sufis," and I was, I thought, "Wow, that's that's something completely new." So I, I started to get into the reading things on Sufism, but really, the what I was reading, they they were all uh, inauthentic. Books I, I discovered later. I mean, they're not books that you can really learn that much from. But it was very, very. Uh, um, it was it was something that drove me to you know to to look further, and then I I got involved with with Sufi groups because I became kind of obsessed with Sufism. Uh, and I, I didn't understand that it, I knew that it had something to do with Islam, but the, the way that it was presented, um, it, uh, it, it wasn't clear, you know. So, so I thought, well, there's, there, Islam is there somewhere, but Sufism is different than Islam. So one thing led to another, and I finally met a group of, of, of Muslims Sufi Muslims in and in, in Berkeley here, um, who were uh, they were Muslim and they were Sufi and they said this you you cannot be a Sufi without being a Muslim, and the other thing that I I, I they, they showed me was the prayer so the salat I'd only seen one person make salat alone, but when I saw a a group of people in a line led by an imam i said this is it i mean this is mm-hmm. then this makes sense so just lo- seeing the prayer and then and then listening to uh, the the litany or the wird that the, was recited i didn't understand anything about it and when i became a muslim it was completely intuitive because i unlike you yourself i really didn't know anything about islam mm-hmm. when i became a muslim and I mean, I was completely clueless, and it was just an instinct. I, I, I knew that I had to do it. That was 1972? 1972, yeah. Mm. 
So that's how I started. I mean, uh, I think the book tells the story in a more interesting way. Yeah, and I would encourage people to read that, Turning Hearts. Hearts Turn. Hearts Turn. Yeah, yeah. Um, And you actually did a tour here with uh, our mutual friend and brother, Uh, Abdullah Azim Sanders, who's spent his life um, really documenting... Uh, visually, a lot of the extraordinary people that we were fortunate to meet. And one of the things that I think one of the things that um, that I feel really fortunate and what you, in essence, really introduced me to was this world of of just people that you don't really see. Uh, they're 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 very often hidden. And you you have to seek them out because they're not people that go seeking right. uh, uh, followers or right. yeah they're people that are really minding their own business but at the same time uh, they're available to those who really who who really want to uh, to have access to them and I think you and I both have uh, lamented the fact that so many of these people have disappeared in our lifetime yes uh, without really seeing replacements. Uh, at least not, I mean, they're they're always, inshallah, will be the the people, but the type purity that that, that many of these people grew up in and the type uh, extraordinary. I I was once in Algeria with uh, Fathi Ben Halim, who you also know, and we we went to this place, Blida, um, and we we stayed with some people there, and there, there was... The, one of them was a really interesting scholar, and I was learning Arabic at the time. This back in the in the early eighties, and um, but we we went into the town and we passed by a, a cafe, and uh, and Fatih and I said, "Can we get a coffee?" And these two um, really devout Algerian uh, Muslims uh, said, "Of course," and and they sat down they sat, sat down, and we had a coffee in this cafe. And then when we finished and left, he said that was the first time he'd ever been in a cafe. Yeah, yeah. Because for them, that was where the battalin, the right. you know, the the wastrels um, spend their time. Right, right. And, and it was a real shock for me because, you know, I think we tend to forget that, you know, there really are those type of people were were you know quite quite common in the muslim world well you know when we when uh, we we were in, when uh, in uh, fez um and I, I know you know this place right next to the karawin yeah, just up from the there's a the almond there's milk. an almond milk <laughs> shop and we would all you know sort of go and have an almond milk um and there was this fakir from uh fez who who looked like he looked he was really scary he was very tall and he and he had scars on his face and he looked like a, somebody that would you know uh, mug you at in the, at midnight but he was actually someone who kept the uh, markets safe you know safe and and he would just w- walk through and I don't think he got paid for it or anything he just would do that and uh, and uh, make sure that people weren't being cheated and you know he was, he had that sort of moral authority and plus he was physically very strong anyway we had been doing vicar someplace and we i think it was i i i, I can't remember this uh, i should ask him but i think it was Ablatif Whiteman and i slipped off to have an almond milk right and we're sitting there, you know, in the second floor, looking out in the street, enjoying our almond milk. And suddenly this, this fakir passes by and he looks up and he frowns. And we look at, we looked out and look at him. Uh, and then suddenly he bounds up the stairs and says, what are you doing here? Get out. And he pulled us out of the thing. And then he said, the last thing he said is, don't you ever go back there again, ever. And I never did. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, <laughs> subhanAllah. The, uh, I mean, we, we really did see something, uh, a world that, um, yeah. that you, you, don't, you just don't see that anymore. 
And one one of the things that really struck me is that when, when I first went to Morocco in 1978, yeah. uh, there there were people there that were actually born in the 19th century when Morocco right. before the French were right. there. And one of the things I, I went, we went up into the uh, the lower Atlas Mountains, right? And there was a sheikh there named Sidi Saleh. I I, I stayed with him. And we, we that you know they had a mosum every year, right. where they would, because they were originally nomadic, so they would take all their tents, even right. though they were sedentary. Now they would right. take their tents, and there was one tent where it was Quran recitation, literally twenty four seven. So right. they would have what they call munawaba. They people would go in and and recite ajza and then they would leave and another group would come and they just kept it going for a whole month it was a month of august and one of the things that really struck me was i was with a group of uh, english and americans and this is 1978 so i was really new in islam and um we there there were two uh, of the women that were with us that there was a very antagonistic relationship between them and uh the, the, coming down from England, right. and when we got to this place and we we were there, they got into a fight. Um, and I won't mention because I know you know both of them, but they yeah. literally got into a physical fight. Yeah. And I remember the person who because we always had there was an Amir, you right. know, if you if you ever had a journey, there was somebody, right. yeah, to, yeah, there was an Amir. So the the Amir just said, no, 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 let them. They need to get this out. You know, and let and let them right. just get it out of their system. And there was a, a faqir there, one of the people from Sidi Saleh's group, who saw them fighting, and he ran in screaming. Right. You know, and just Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad, and and he pulled them apart. Yeah. And then he went and he told Sidi Saleh, who was like the sheikh this, of this tribe, right. and very so he, noble, very noble, and just an amazing man. Yeah. And and he brought all of us together in his tent right. and I know I'll never forget as long as I live he gave this dars uh, <laughs> about islah that yeah. al-bain about rectifying between Muslims and he said how you never allow ever yeah. allow Muslims to fight right and uh, that's that's wonderful yeah this, this well is... it made me think about like our culture where when that happens, like people like fight, 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 you know, they, right. they really get into it. Right. And, uh, it's, <laughs> it is part of, if you look at our culture now, it's a competitive culture. It's all about, I, I, I want to win, you know, I mean, Thomas Edison, the, the inventor, he said, I don't really care about money. He said, I care about getting ahead of the other guy, you know, and, you know, he was, you know, ferocious come and we're we're taught that and i always had a problem with that because i don't i don't care if i win you know you, you know it's it's very interesting you're saying that because the um the 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 desert fathers right who right. who like literally part of their whole thing was fleeing the world for that very reason right but uh, Thomas Merton, in his, he has a book called The Desert Fathers, and they're all vignettes about these desert fathers. But he has a, um, two of them that lived in a cave together in Egypt right. for years. They'd been <laughs> living in this cave. Yeah. And uh, one of them said to the other monk, you know, we've been here 20 years and we've never had an argument. Let's, let's have an argument just for the sake of it. And the other one said, well, what should we argue about? And he, and and so he said, "Well, here let's let's take this rock, okay?" And he said, and "I'm going to say, I, you know, I'm going to say it's mine, and then you say no, it's mine, and and maybe that'll start it." And and so he puts the rock down. He said, "That's mine," and the other monk said, "You can have it." That's. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard also Shuyu talk about marital relations in that light. Uh, and something I say to young couples, I say, don't don't fight. And, and you know, people think, well, that's impossible. Uh, of course, we have to fight. Why? If you're upset about something, take a walk. 
because and this you know I've seen how this works when young young married couples they 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 have a problem or something they fight and they say something that they don't really mean and then five years later the, the they they're still thinking about that you know you you told me that you hated me you right. know in, in the, the heat of the moment so I think that it's it's this this is what I, I think is is so beautiful about Islam is uh, this this the, 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 it's 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 a practical way of living where you it's uh, one of the people that I profiled in Hart's Turn was a guy who was a gangster named Martin Askew. And Martin is a, a wonderful guy, but he was a he was an East London gangster. I mean, really violent guy. And he he said he his whole life was fed on anger. You know, he'd walk down the street and if someone looked at him wrong, he'd beat them or something. He was just full full of anger, and and it was a mask for insecurity and all these other things. But he was you know he was one of the he was one of the boys you know and. Uh, when he became a Muslim, uh, he, he, part of the reason he became a Muslim is that he, he was beaten nearly to death. He was in a brawl and he nearly died. And he, anyway, one thing led to another, he became a Muslim. And then he read the hadith of the Prophet, where one of the Sahaba came to him and said, give me, give me counsel. And he said, do not be angry. And he kept he three he times. three three times, and Martin said that changed his entire life. Mm. And so what he would do is every day he would go out with the intention of not being angry, you know. And people would you know, and it, it, it's it's a remarkable thing, till he just got used to it. He, mm. he I'm I'm not going to get angry. And he was in a culture that provoked, you know, provocation was part of the culture. And he said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be angry, you know. We had last week, I, I spoke with um, Tobias Tubbs, who, who right. was unjustly put into prison for, for a crime he didn't commit, spent 28 years wow. in prison. But he, he, his philosophy was, he was a Muslim. He was mm. 20 years old, he was a Muslim. But his philosophy was... God determines your circumstances. You determine your response. Right. And so he just said, yeah, I'm here. God put me here. And I'm not going to be angry about this. I'm right. going to make it work for me. And he ended up right. guiding thousands of people in prison right. because of that. And he told me that he used to smile all the time and it would bother like the guards. Like, what are you happy about? You know, like you're right. supposed to be miserable. This is prison. Right. Right, and he was like, "No, it's I'm not going to make it my prison because the prison's between your two ears." Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, the Prophet ﷺ said that the dunya, and this is a Sahih Hadith, a dunya sijin al mu'min, the world is the prison it's of the prison. believer. It's yeah. the size of the cell. That's right. all it is. Right. You know, we have large cells. People in prison actually have very small cells. Right. But, but the mind has this infinite capacity right. to journey. Right. And and I there was a Mauritanian, that, a young Mauritanian that I, who I recently saw in a dream. I hadn't thought about him for a long time. But he, out in the desert, he used to visit places all the time. He would tell me, I went to Switzerland last night, <laughs> like in his dreams. And he said, it's all green, and there were all these amazing mountains. Mm -hmm. And he just had that amazing capacity <laughs> to uh to yeah. go places in his in his mind and it yeah. was really uh, it was unusual so yeah i couldn't agree with you more about just that transformative power and then nia you know right. like you said he would go out with the intention, with the intention and i think yeah. that's where intentionality and the fact that intention is so central to our tradition mm, yes you know that yeah. we we tend to forget that that how central it is to our our tradition and I mean, one of the things that, you know, because I remember early on, that's one of the things that you really focused on uh, when we were, because we lived together for right. that period when we were in, in Monterey. And 
it was all about intention. Like, what's your intention? Right. And thinking about that and what we did and actually doing actions with intention. Right. I think it, it, you bring up a point that I think is, is very important for young people today. Because we, since, from the t since the time we were young, things have changed to, a, to, in my view, an alarming degree that everything has become externalized. Or uh, you know, or monetized, or materialized in some way, and, and to the point where people don't have an inner life. And I've seen this. My my daughter once. There was a young woman who seemed she was love. You know, you know, attractive and intelligent, and you know, had a nice job. And I and I mentioned. I said she seems like a nice person. My daughter said she's miserable. And I said why? said, I don't know. But she said, everybody's miserable. I mean, people are carrying around. And I think it's because they have no inter... Everything is externalized. They live in an external world where, you know, the, the aim of life is to acquire things to right. make you feel better. And, the, and, the, and, and this idea of intention is, is the beginning of having an inward journey right because you're suddenly what's important is is not what happens to you outside but what is your intention and and what's the state of the heart right and 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 we've all experienced that you know well, to some yeah and one of the things i think the the, the um, apple used to have a an ad for the ipod uh -huh. and and it was a shadow dancing with the earphones and, and, and holding the iPod. So the only things that were actually in color and were, were, was the product. Was the, product. Right. The, the human being was just a shadow. Uh. And, 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 and it made me think that essentially iPod is they took out the verb to be like, I am a pod and just put iPod. Right. So it becomes as if the being is is absent because everything is being there you're you're listening you know the visual arts you're seeing but the actual the khayal mm. the imagination is absent right and and one of the things that really uh, struck me you know in raising my kids i didn't they didn't we didn't let them watch television but i would have them read books and you know like literary books and and then we would show them like you know, every once in a while, a film, an old film of that book, they were always disappointed with the films. Of course. They would always say, mm, it's not like the book. It's not like I imagined. Exactly. And, and I think one of the things for me about young people today is they're being robbed of their imaginations. Yeah. And, and that gets to the internal world. Right. Because, you know, I mean, some of our great scholastics and, and the, the really profound... Muslim scholars, uh, khayal was very important. Mm. You know, the ability to uh, imagine, you know, to con mm. con conceptualize things that we, we only have access to through the imagination. Right. And I, I mean, one of the things about the Quran is that it's, it's really presenting the other world in, in, in these mm. incredibly... Uh, visually stimulating images, right. but it demands imagination, and and even that would never suffice because the Prophet ﷺ said the afterlife is what, mm. you know, what la ainun ra'at, wa No eye has seen it, no ear has heard it, and it never occurred to the human being. But they're all approximations. So I I couldn't agree with you more about that. It's it's one of the it's one of the really tragic aspects for a lot of people is that they're deprived of like great literature uh, right. and, and, um, and also uh, poetry. And, you know, I, uh, one of the things I really find fascinating, because when I was young, poetry was really important to me. And, and I, I find a lot of young people, they just don't like poetry. And, and, uh, and I think a lot of it is because it's very difficult for them to access it because Poetry is is really works on, on these extraordinary conceits that demand a kind of inwardness. Right, right. Yeah, I, th I, 
I, I, th I think that we now have uh, creative expressions that are they that are, are almost everything is linked to be to, to how much money you can make out of it and that and so everything has become a formula and so even if someone reads poetry it it isn't necessarily even great poetry no i mean i don't even uh, is is there are there are there popular poets now a rumi is very popular uh-huh <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I mean, poetry has fallen on hard times, right? Yeah. Um, and even like songwriting, which is where lyrical right. poetry went. Right. What happened in the past? You had like the Tin Pan Alley, right. where you'd have songwriters that were professional songwriters, right. and they often wrote some really clever songs, um, something like Cole Porter, yeah, or Irving Berlin, or, yeah, or yeah. Gershwin. These, I mean, yeah. they were incredibly clever people. But w when you when you look at at a certain point, they realized they could make money. You could, the, the actual performer could make money if they wrote their lyrics. And so lyrics just went down the drain. Right. Because all they would do is sing meaningless lyrics. But because they wrote them, they got the royalties for them. Right, yeah. right, yeah. So and the, the, this, is, this is a trend that's, you know, it's, it's getting more and more. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, well, it's a modern word, monetization. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd never heard of it. Exactly. Until, it's, until it's, 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 how do you monetize that? Yeah. How, how do you get yeah. Monera was a god yeah. too yeah. In, for the Romans. I mean, this, and this has happened in politics as well. People monetize their public service now, you know, become lobbyists. And, and so the whole environment now, it, it sort of militates against having an inner life because it's so important. And and it's affected the way we live. I mean, when we were young, when I was young, uh, I went to university. It cost me uh, about one hundred and seventy dollars a year, you know, for tuition. UCLA. UCLA. Like a, yeah. Considered a good it was university. A, was a good school, yeah. and and uh, uh, my mother it was like I think twenty five dollars. She told me. Yeah, it's it's that it's that. She went to UC Berkeley. Right. And now it's tens of thousands of dollars you spend. Right. And if you go to a private school, school, then it's it's twice the the the, the cost. So how do how do young people get out get out in life? I don't know how that that I don't know how it works. Um, well, there is a way out. I think the the. Um, the the Quran says, "Woman You know that if you turn away from my remem remembrance, you will have a constricted life. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize that much of what's happening to us is because there's a deep forgetfulness yes. of the Creator, and mm -hmm. so life becomes constricted. Yes, and the Quran says, you know, ardu bima rahubat." The earth, despite its vastness, becomes a constrict place. Right. You know, right. like people feel constricted in it. And one of my favorite, um, this is kind of economics of the mystics. Um, uh, Ibrahim, they came to Ibrahim ibn Adham and they said to him, you know, the meat has skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. So make a dua that Allah will bring the price down. And he said, no, you yourselves bring it down. And they looked at it and said, how do we do that? He said, stop eating it, <laughs> which is <laughs> basically yeah. mystic economic supply right. and demand. You want right. the price to go down, stop eating stop the meat. And, and so, I, you know, I think there's people don't realize how much power they actually God's given them. Right. I mean, it's majaz, but, we, mm. you know, we we have been given uh, these great gifts right. um, to change our worlds, not necessarily right. the world. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody right. wants to change right. their yeah. world. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mentioned this yesterday, but the, the conversation we had, you were saying, oh, the world is in a terrible state and it's really terrible. And then there was a pause and you said, but I'm doing okay. And I thought, Yes, that's I'm doing okay too. Everybody I know is doing okay because we live in a in, in a in 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 a in a universe where we recognize that everything is from God. Everything is from Allah. 
And uh, when 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 the pandemic hit, my son, uh, who's my eldest son, who's a, a you know very gifted chef, was uh, worried about um, being furloughed, and he he ultimately was for for a couple of months. Um, but I said, remember, everything is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, mm. everything. And he visibly, because he, he, he's been, I told him that all his life, but just the reminder of that, he just visibly relaxed. Mm. And when he was furloughed, he had, he had the best time of his life. He had a great time because he could spend more time with his children. He, 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 he became more physically fit, mm. things like that. Um, and we need to remind each other that of of that that reality. I mean, I th I think that it's Sheikh Darkawi said that nothing brings psychic and satanic suggestions faster than uh, uh, than anxiety about provision. Fear of provision. Yeah, it's one of yeah. the in in the purification of the heart. It's one of the diseases yeah. of the heart. Yes, you know yeah. the, the fear, and and then Shaitan in the Quran it says al-Fakr, yeah. and he promises you poverty. Right. I mean right. that's one of Iblis's great strategies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then the Quran says Human beings are created in a state of anxiety, like we come yeah. into the world in a state of anxiety, yeah. Yeah. and then and then you know If 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 they get good, they withhold, and if and if and then if harm. Uh, comes to them, they you know they 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 uh, they they lose it, it right. Illan musallin, except for the people of prayer, right. And and then also the other thing, I mean, there, what I think what a lot of people don't understand about um, Islamic tradition is that in the same way that you have these physical laws, there are physical laws working in the world, like the law of cause and effect, you know, um, the law of entropy. All the, there's physical laws. If you if you if you if you fall off a, a a building, a tall building, you will literally uh, you know crash and break all your bones. The cat, you know, they studied right. why cats are able to uh, withstand these immense falls. Do you know what they found? The reason was uh. they're completely relaxed. Uh. They yeah. they just completely relax right. all of their. So when they land. There's there's no shock, right? Uh, and apparently they say that people can break bones on their way down because they're just so stressed, right? By what's happening, and so that idea of, you know, I I've used the analogy of, you know, when my sons were little, I used to throw them up, and they loved it. But yes. right when they got to the point where where you're gonna catch where them. they're no where they're about, they stop in midair and then they're gonna start coming down. They right. go into panic, right? Because they don't know what's happening. Right. But then they come back into your arms and and then they're, they're laughing again. Right. And every time I would do it, the same right. thing would happen. It was really yeah. uh, amazing to see that. And I think that's that to me is dunya. Yeah. You know, it's like people that panic is forgetting. That right. you're in good hands, in good hands you know, yeah. and so the metaphysical laws that the Quran has provided us, like yeah. that is a, a, a as true or truer than any physical law. That if right. you have taqwa, Allah will always mm. provide a way out for you, and He will provide from you from where you don't mm. know right. where it's coming. Right, and and I mean we've. We're old enough to have seen the truth of that right. again and again and again. And yeah. people people just panic. Yeah. You know, I, Pan, it's interesting because the panic comes from, you know, there was a Greek god, Pan. Pan yes. And Pan was, he, he, would, he was like a demonic force. Right. But he would shout and create such fear in the hearts of those who heard it. And and according to the Greek mythology, that if he didn't like an army, right, uh, and he wanted the other one to defeat him, he would right. create all this fear in them, right. And and that's where you know panic comes from. And right. then Milton uh, brought the pandemonium. You know this right. idea of the great word. Yeah, I love that. yeah, right. where all the demons reside. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that's people live in a state of epidemic, panic. right? I mean, uh, this is where it's like a pandemic. I mean, even though pan here means all, all like it's yes. everywhere, but it's very interesting that that same Greek root is is right. in there. You know that people have fear. James Tyler Kent, um, the great nineteenth-century homeopathic physician, he worked all of these epidemics. And one of the things that he said that he noted that when people were in the service for the sake of God without fear, he said, it, he, said he found that they were immune to the, uh, the epidemics. Right. And he right. said, but whenever he would see the fear come into the hearts of the doctors or nurses, he said they would succumb. Right. And he said, he said he really believed that, that fear was, was a, a great source of, uh, of illness. Well, there's a, there's a story uh, of... Um, uh, from one of the the old texts, where um, a, a traveler is walking along the road and he meets the angel of death, and he he asked the angel of death, "Where are you headed?" He said, "To such and such a city, mm. because there's a a plague there, and uh, I I you know I I've been ordered to take one thousand souls." So. On the way back from wherever his journey was, he encountered the angel of death again. And he, and he said, you, I just heard that 5,000 people died in the, in the plague, but you told me you were only ordered to take 1,000 1, souls. He said, yes, I took 1,000 souls, and the other 4,000 died out of fear. Yeah. <laughs> it is to my point. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there's that great also meeting in Samara. That's a, yes, yes, of course. a great story retold by by different authors. But yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, you know the fear of death, and and this is one of the things. You know, I recently interviewed um, uh, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran mm. Khan. Yes, and and the subject we were talking about was pride. Right. And one of the things that I said to him was that. You know, he, he was a man, you know, he was born, he has quite extraordinary lineage because his, one of his grandparents actually invented the, the Patan alphabet. And, uh -huh. and then on the other side, he comes from a, some military leaders. So he's got this illustrious lineage in their culture. You know, he was extraordinarily handsome. He was a world-class athlete. I mean, he went to Oxford. He did philosophy. He became a a businessman, he was successful. He became a philanthropist. He was, then he ran for prime minister and he won. I said, how do you deal with pride? Yeah. <laughs> and he said that he realized that there were basically three major fears that every human being has. And, yeah. and he said that the first one is like a fear of, of death. Yeah. And, and he said, if you lose that fear, then because your, ha your life is in God's hands, it's not in your hands. If you lose that fear, then you just have a major advantage over people that have, have that fear. And he said the other was a fear of provision. Yes. And, 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 the, and the third one was a fear of rejection, like just uh, people. Uh. He said, if, if, if you can overcome those fears, then y you don't have to worry about things. like He said with pride, he said, being an all-arounder in cricket taught me something about pride because... He said, one day I, I did great and everybody was plotting. And the next day I had a terrible day and everybody's booing. Yes. And, and, he's, and he said he, he just realized that it's very fickle. Right. You know, this idea that you know, people like me because the next day they might not like you. And, and I remember a really amazing interview that I heard with um, uh, uh, Dylan, the, the uh, performer. And the man asked him, he said, uh, why are you out here doing this, you know, still? Is it, is it about the applause? And he said, no, it's never been about the applause. He said, I toured for a couple of years just to booing, right? Because right. when, yeah, when he went yeah. electric, they all booed right. him. For like two years, he toured. Right. Some of the guys left his, because they couldn't take the booing. And, right. uh, and then he said, he said, well, I mean, the applause, you must like that much better. And, and he paused and then just said, well, let's put it this way. It's more comfortable. Right. You know, but I just thought that was really, if somebody has that attitude right. of just, you're not there for the applause, right. you know, for people to pat on the back. Right. And, and I think that prevents a lot of people from being free in whatever right. they do because yeah. they're, they're, they're seeking that, 
that that applause. You know, there's something right, speakers right. know. Like I see speakers, and there are certain applause lines that you that, that speakers just throw out because they know they're going to get an applause right, for it. Right. And and it, it becomes like a performance, as right. as opposed to something that's real. Exactly. It's. I was going to say it's that's that whole thing is not real. Um, I was thinking about what you were saying about the fear of death. Uh, and I, I, I once uh, I was with uh, Mustafa Badui, Doctor Mustafa right, Badui, who, who is mm. a great man, and he also he's also a psychiatrist. Mm. So I was just curious. I, I I was thinking about mental illness and what causes it, and so on. So I said, what what is the principal cause of of mental illness? Have you observed any common thread in in various forms of mental illness and what he said took me by surprise but it was the most obvious thing he said it's the fear of death and I thought wow that's that makes sense because that's the only thing we know that's going to happen to us for certain we absolutely know that so it's completely insane to, to reject that you know to 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 not deal with it, and we I, I'm I'm sorry to say we live in a culture where people don't want to think about death. They death think denial. it's more yeah it's it's, it's morbid. Denial. You know, what, you know what? it's uh, yeah it's interesting you're saying that because one of the things that you know I have over my uh, where I work mm. I, I my my son did a nice little I I, I saw this I can't remember it was in New York or one of these things and there's a man at a computer so my son drew it to look like me. But there's a man at a computer, and then there's the the Grim Reaper right. comes in with, and he's got his scythe, and uh, right. or his sickle, and uh, I use the scythe, and and he, um, the man says to him, "I'm so glad you're here. I I can only work under a deadline," <laughs> <laughs> and it's really a reminder, you it know, is. that yeah. you know that death is coming. And one one of the things that struck me about. Um, I, years ago, I was taken into the throne room um, by Baroness Udin in uh, in England, right. uh, where the, uh, the the king or queen of the of the realm sits you know, on for official. But there was a gift from the French um, king that was about two hundred years old, and it was a amazing clock. But over the clock was the Grim Reaper, wow. and 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 they called those memento mori, you know, reminders of death. Right. So, so if you look in in Western tradition, they ha- they used to have pictures that they would put up, right. and and like they would have a skeleton with an hourglass over a man dancing, right? You know, like little do you know this could be your last dance, right. you know, or like on the sundials they would have things like carpe diem, seize the day, right. or or in one of these hours you will be seized. They they would literally write that in right. Latin, right? And and it wasn't a morbid understanding it was an understanding that time is limited right and i think we obviously i mean i've felt it most of my life because one what brought me to islam and really to even any seriousness about uh life was a a really intense car accident of just realizing at 17 i could have just left the world yes and 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 the precariousness of life and the recognition that it's it's incredibly fleeting, right? And and we're all grasping uh, on, on straws, really, right. because we have no guarantee. And the Prophet Sam said, "Wake up in the morning, not thinking you'll reach the evening, right. and go to sleep at night, not thinking that you'll see the morning." Right. And that's a Sahih Hadith that Imam right. Nawawi put in the in the forty as. I mean, that is an incredible reminder of yeah. just yeah. the presence of death. And when I was asked to write the essay in the study Quran on death, um, which I initially excused myself and just because it, you know, it was it was a very daunting um, uh, task uh, to say the least. But um, the editor insisted, you know, just said, no, you have to do this. Um, so 
it took me a long time, but one of the things that I realized in reading the Quran, and I've read it from different perspectives, like I've read it thinking about family, right. just so that I could see any verses that had to do with family. I've right. read it from thinking about poverty, uh, different things, right. like uh, to try to look at it thematically. When I read it thinking about death, I realized every single page of the Quran has the scent of death on it. Right. Every single, every single page. Yeah. And I realized that the three surahs that people are encouraged to read every day, which is Yasin, uh, Waqia, and Mulk, mm. they're death they're meditations the, yes, from yes. beginning to end. Like if yeah. you read Yasin, you will see it's a death meditation. Right. If you read Waqia, it's a death meditation. Right. If you read Mulk, it's a death meditation. Right. And I just it just really struck me of right. just how important that is. And every night when I was with Murat al-Hajj, because I actually slept with him in, in his yeah. tent, wow. every night he would say these lines from Imam Shafi, and he would repeat them over and over again. Uh, and, and they were basically, Oh, you who when death comes, there is no repelling. Wow. And I find myself in a dark grave. You are the make the 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 meal that you bring me because you're a generous host, the forgiveness of my sins. Uh, and, and and he would repeat it over and over again till uh, he went to sleep. You know? Just like thinking about death as he went to sleep, and we know uh, death is, is sleep is the little death. Right. Yeah. Right. It's just amazing. Yeah. But he did death meditation on a regular basis. When I was 16, I think I was 16, 15 or 16, um, I, you know, I was typical American kid. You know, I, I was interested in, at that point in girls and music and theater and, you know, that kind of thing. But one night I... Um, I started to lose my scent. I was going to sleep, and then I suddenly experienced this horrifying loss of self. I lost my sense of hearing, seeing, moving, and finally breathing. And I, I was in this abyss, and in the abyss... I, I said, well, if if I'm not all of that, who am I? Who am I? Right? It was really frightening, uh, you know. And I wasn't someone who was reflective. I hadn't read anything that that uh, made made any uh, Im impact on me. I, I had I had no trauma in my life, nothing like that. Mm. But this just happened involuntarily, and it probably took about a minute maximum to to happen. But it was time had as if time had stopped, and I was mm. in this. So I came out of that, and I was incredibly disoriented, and I was so um, I, I got up. I was so shocked. I got up just to look in the mirror to see if I still existed, and then after that, I, I tried to you know I, I broached the subject. I had a girlfriend, and I, I said, "Have you ever?" thought about dying, being... Because I, I knew for certain I was going to die. That was the first time that that realization came to me. And so I asked, I asked my girlfriend, and she, she, I drew a blank. Then I asked my parents, and I thought, well, they would say, well, you know, oh, yes, we went through that, you know, this is... You're growing up, you'll go through things. I, they, were, they were baffled by that. They, could, they had no answer. So I felt very alone. And then years later, I read uh, um, the writings and, and, and of Ramana Maharshi, who was the uh, Hindu sage. Uh, and he went through, at the age of 16, he went through exactly the same thing. The only difference between him and me is that it, he stayed in that state where he was, you know, in a constant, not of fear, but, but an of, awareness, uh, an awareness, mm. and his practice of, for his, you know, his, his students or followers was, who am I, and to you know, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this, I'm not that. Who am I? And it was only, and I finally, I tried to figure out, I tried to, you know, come 
to some conclusion about that at the time. And I finally gave up. I said, I, I can't. And it was only after I became a Muslim that I began to understand that process. Uh, but I think that that's in, in, inherent in, in our, our sense of belief and those of us who have you know, actually changed religion if you, or taken on Islam as a religion. Uh, I think I don't know a single person who hasn't had some kind of experience of death in, in one form or another. For me, it wasn't physical. It was a metaphorical thing. It just it, and it scared the daylights out of me. I have to, I have to say, the first time, uh, and I felt I felt some solace in the fact that it also scared the daylights out of Ramana Maharshi. You know, initially it was it's a, it, because to lose the everything that you know you 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 think you are. Mm. Is 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 frightening. Uh, one one of the best teachers that I had um, when I was doing my undergraduate uh, was a man named Ken Kramer, who mm-hmm. who was a Buber expert. Uh, but yeah. I remember he uh, he gave a lecture once about the that at a at a point in your life you will come to a profoundly existential awareness of your mortality. Uh, and it'll, he said it'll be one of the most powerful experiences right. that you will have. He said for some people it, it will come very early, and other people it won't come till the moment of their death. Right. And he said, but everybody will have it. Right. And, and I distinctly remember that, uh, right. which was go, it being in a head-on collision right. and, and coming out of it alive. Right. Um, and, and wondering for about three days whether I was dead or alive. Right. Um, there, there's actually a film with Jeff Bridges um, where he survives a plane crash. Yes, yes. That's uh, a Peter uh, Weir film. It's a, it's yeah. a very interesting film. Well, that, yeah. that state that he was in was yeah. the exact state I was in. Wow. I mean, literally. Wow. I, I was looking, I was touching myself right. and wondering if I was alive or dead. Right. And... Um, and I asked him in the class, when did he have it? And he he had the experience. He was on a he was on a he was in a tenement, and he was outside, sitting in, in on the east coast. You know, they had those those uh, um, metal stairs right. outside. And he was sitting out, and he just had this realization yeah. that he was going to die. And he said he felt it in his entire body, and it terrified him. Yeah, and. Um, we we one of our sons um uh he when he how old was he isaac when he saw a dead bird and he looked at it and he said what is that and and uh he said it's it's a bird he said no why why isn't it why is it like that and she said it's dead and he said does that happen to all of us and she said yes and he just started screaming yeah you know just terrified and she said no no no, but it's only a transition we you know god brings us back to life in another place and and he just completely calmed down right and he said he said and that for the the atheists and the materialists, they say is is the proof that religion is just a the, you know this was Freud's view that it was wishful thinking. Yeah, wishful thinking. Yeah, and but to me that's the fitra proof. Right, because you know that you're that you that you exist beyond the world. Exactly. Yeah, it's it, a fitra it's proof. A, who am I? And and yeah, see, yeah. one of the things people say if it was wishful thinking. <laughs> Why the hell would have they invented hell? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Those are, those are, those are for the, the, the sadists or the masochists. And then they would say, oh, that's because the people in power wanted to control the people. Well, why yeah. is it that the prophets were largely powerless people? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, they begin their missions in powerlessness. Right. I mean, the Prophet had no power. One of the things that most struck me about the Jahili Arabs is they they didn't believe in an afterlife. Really? Yeah. They had no, they only believed that you were immortalized through poetry. Right. They did not believe it. They said, Mahi illa, you know, Hayatuna dunya. This is only the life of this world. Uh, They said, 
We live and we die and nothing kills us except time. Right. They didn't believe in an afterlife, the Arabs. Right. So yeah. they were they were atheists. And if you look in Surah Al-Hajj, it gives yeah. two proofs for the the afterlife. One of them is the embryonic proof, which I believe is for this time, and the other is the agricultural proof, which was for their time. Because the embryonic time, how would how would the prophet there was no way the prophet could have access to that embryological knowledge of what was happening in the womb. And Allah says, like that will create you again. You know, will but the other is just seeing the dead earth come back to life. You know, the rain comes and it was dead and there it is back to life again. Right. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. Well I'm I'm glad we got this opportunity. Um I I I you know, from time to time I think about those times, you know, they were very um memorable times that I spent with you and you taught me a lot of very interesting things. Um and and I, and just I have a lot of gratitude for for that time and for your you know, guidance. Well, I I I'm I'm the one that should be grateful. I mean, because I'm I didn't go to the same effort efforts. I didn't uh, go to the same extent that you did to to seek out knowledge. In fact, I I was doing you know one of these book tours, and someone in the audience got up and said, you know, I think you're like the Forrest Gump of Sufism. <laughs> and I thought I I didn't like the movie, but I could see the, I could see his point. I just I'm lucky to meet you and and uh, blessed to meet you and Alhamdulillah. And, you know, I was uh, telling earlier the um you know, I had read the Quran cuz my brother Harun's with me here, but I I don't know if you know the story, but I had read the Quran and uh and cuz I I was literally you know, my mother exposed me to all the world religions. Like she literally took me to a synagogue, to a sangai, to a mosque. When I was 12, she took me to a mosque. I prayed the first time, did wudu and prayed with the group that was a mosque in Fairfax. But her view was, you know, that the the reason, because I, I was baptized Orthodox, because my grandfather was Orthodox. But he's, she said the reason that, that you're, orthodox is just it's just family like people if you were born in sri lanka you'd be a buddhist or a hindu mm -hmm. or something so she said you can't ever think that just because you're born into something it's it makes it the only uh, truth right and she raised us like that just right. to, so so when i had my car accident i thought mm, you know what? What is? What are these? I want to see what they say about death and afterlife. Right. Which, which is why it was so strange when I was asked to write about death in the Quran, because that's right. what brought me to the Quran. Right. So it was. It was a very interesting uh, coincidence, uh, if you could use that term for it. But, um, so you know, I, I, I was reading all these different, and I was studying Houston Smith's book in at the college I was going to, the Religion of Man. And Islam was like the last one on my list. But I went and I, I bought this Quran uh, a used, uh, at a used bookstore. And, and I'd read it. And I got really interested. And then I found this book by Martin Lings called, uh, it was by Abu Bakr Sirajuddin called The Book of Certainty. Yes. Uh, uh, it yes. was in Ojai. I got it at the, the Theosophical uh, Society in right. Ojai. And it, it was quoting the Quran constantly. And uh, so I had a friend who was at the University of Santa Barbara and uh, she had just met uh, Harun and his wife. And so I, I was telling her about, you know, I'm reading this book, the Quran, it's really fascinating. And, and she said, oh, I just met this man from Mecca. So mm -hmm. she thought, because he was, he was living in Mecca, um, at least his wife was from Mecca, and I think you we, lived there. We were, well, we, we had lived. Well, yeah. We had actually lived in Egypt, and that's a whole other story. Yeah. And we come to the U.S., yeah. and then ultimately we went back and lived in Mecca. But, yeah. So, so she's telling me about this person, and then I said, "Did you get his number?" So 
So I wanted to talk to him because I really hadn't met. I, I knew one Muslim from uh, high school, Panjai, who was from Gambia, uh, who I found out later was a very successful businessman in Gambia. Yeah, really? But, um, and then the phone rang, and I just felt in my heart, it's him. And sure enough, it was, uh, and he invited me to, uh, he, he actually invited this person to, to go. That night they were having a gathering, and I said, ask if I can come along, and he said, sure. And, um, and I went, and a few days later, I think, I said shahada with you. Yeah, it was, we, we spent some time together. Yeah. I can't remember. You took me to L.A., we went to L.A. Yeah, and, we went to L.A. Yeah, we had we had some some adventures. Yeah, uh, there's some other stuff maybe offline we can yeah. <laughs> yeah. go go down memory lane. Yeah. But um, no, it was that was a, that was a good time, and when really uh, uh, I tell people that you you were already you were already there, you were convinced before we even yeah. Met, alhamdulillah, you know, I mean, I uh, I was definitely wanted to right. yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, but it's it, you, you. You kind of read yourself into uh, to to Islam in, in a way. I mean, by by looking, you know, reading the Quran. And me, I didn't know anything. I was a, an idiot. I was clueless, mm. and uh, it took me a long time to sort of really understand what I was what I was doing. It was completely intuitive. I just said this. I I know just by looking at the prayer. You know, just when you see that, to me, I, th I said, because it's it's ecstatic and it's sober at the same time, mm. and it's real. You know, as people do this, and they, it's just so, it's it's so beautiful. You know, the, and we, I think, as Muslims, we lose sight of the, the beauty of what we what we're re supposed to be doing every day. Uh, we were talking, yes, you know. The, um, Yesterday about Imam uh, Ozai, yeah, and, and this uh, this idea that he, he, one of his shurut, which I, it's interesting, uh, you you mentioned this is in Maliki khushua, as well, yeah. is is that you should have khushua in your prayer, and in 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 apparently uh, in his madhab, if you mm -hmm. don't have khushua, you have to go back and do it again. Yeah. It's not acceptable. So I thought, you know, we really have, and that what that indicates to me is that the the Sahaba and the Tabi'in they all had khushua. They, they right. you know, it was just a normal thing. And then it started to we become so distracted. The Prophet Sallallahu said that the first knowledge that would be lost was ilm al khushua. Allah, 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 Allah. Yeah, the the knowledge of that awe yes. of God in the prayer. And some said, well, the hadith says the first knowledge that would be lost would be inheritance laws. And the, the, the way they reconcile between the two is the first inward knowledge would be yes. khushu' and the first outward knowledge would be inheritance laws. Allah. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah, Alhamdulillah. Well, Allah thank you for this. I know you're, you're on your journey. And there was, we, we, I, I actually this morning at, Six in the morning, I was talking to people in Kerala. I had a talk yeah. with these people in Kerala. They asked me to speak. and So it's been a, a long, strange trip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're grateful, Dad. You know, yeah. So, alhamdulillah. Jazakallah khairan, Sidi. May Allah bless you and keep you safe and preserve you and your family, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank inshallah. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah.